Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode four of Faith Practically. I am your Darian Claxton, and in this session, we're going to talk about the value of being transparent and sharing our faith. We're going to learn a powerful lesson from the peculiar phenomenon that's a Dead Sea, and we'll see why God worked a stunning miracle for one of the most wicked men who ever lived. But first, let's pray. Father God, grant unto me your servant that I might speak your word with boldness. In Christ's name, amen. This is episode is entitled The Power of Transparency. A couple months ago, some of my ministry brothers and I, we had the opportunity to speak at an event. It was a youth event at one of the local churches here in the Washington, D.C. area. And we had a great turnout. The good news is we had about 50 individuals who came, which is a lot of people for these kind of events. The not so good news is only about maybe four or five of the people that came were actually young people, so about 10%. Uh, they were under 20 years old. We had a few, maybe one or two folks that were in their 30s and 40s, and everyone else was 50s and over, which, you know, they were welcome. Don't get me wrong. You know, we had a certain audience in mind, but, you know, we adjusted, and God blessed. Everyone had a very good time. So initially, the idea was creating a safe space for young people to come and talk about certain topics that, that we had set up and, and let the Holy Spirit move in the conversation, kind of a rap session. But, you know, when we got there and we saw the demographics, you know, the young people, nine times out of ten, they're not going to feel comfortable 
talking about some of those things when you have folks who've been in the church, you know, they know their parents, they know their grandparents. Uh, so there is a comfort level, you know, not, they don't have. So they're going to be quiet. And we realized that. And the conversation kind of morphed into, among other things, a, a look at one of the major problems that faces pretty much every church, regardless of denomination, all across the world. And that is, how do you retain young people in the church? You know, we're looking around and we're like, where are the young people? And a lot of churches are just bleeding out young folks left and right who, once they get of age, they're not obligated to go to church by their parents. They're not forced to go. They're just ghosts. So, so that's what we're talking about. And one of the things that, a theme that was recurring and it inspired me to talk about it on the show was the idea of transparency. Transparency is key for particularly keeping young folks because a young person, they, they look at the pastor, they look at an elder, they look at an older member of the church, they're buttoned up, they're dressed nicely. You know, in their eyes, that person can do no wrong. So they're like, I can never be that person. There's this insurmountable standard that has been set. This benchmark is so high for them that they just give up. So they're like, you know, I, I, can't, do, I can't deal with that, so I'm gone. But if you as an adult, if you have struggled in your past with something, maybe it was smoking, maybe it was drugs, alcohol, and you walk past a person who you know is dealing with that, maybe they smell of smoke, they smell of marijuana, they smell of alcohol, they've had multiple baby mamas or baby daddies, you have three choices. The first choice is to act like nothing's going on and just keep it moving. And, and, and that might seem admirable, to you at first because you're thinking I'm not judging them I'm just letting them be but that's a real stick your head in the sand approach and you lose a valuable opportunity to reach that individual the second choice you have is what many adults do and we talked about it in this session and that is point your finger at them berate them vilify them come down on them because of their choices and you rationalize this behavior as an adult because you know the dangers like you've been that 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 path before and you want them to avoid it this is your way of keeping a real calling out sin, tell the truth, change the devil. And the third choice you have is to be transparent. So what is the value of transparency in sharing our faith? So we're going to look at it from a general standpoint. We're going to look at it within the fellowship of believers, within the church setting, and we're going to look at it outside the church. You know, so sometimes you know, a lot of folks are just like, I'm not feeling it. So maybe you don't feel like you can share your faith. Maybe you're intimidated, you know, like I'm not a pastor, I'm not an evangelist, I don't know the Bible very well. Even though I've been going to church, I don't have it to give to somebody else. And you don't want people to know that. Uh, you're like, I don't have one of those great testimonies where someone talks about how they had no food and they were praying and someone knocked at the door and they looked down and there were some groceries and someone left. You know, you've heard that testimony many times from many different people, but you're like, I don't have that testimony. I'm not even sure about my own faith, you say. So when I do more damage than good, if I talk to people, shouldn't I get stronger first and then share and then be transparent? So maybe that's your thought process. And, and so the, the idea of following the Great Commission is just not practical to you. But the truth is that many of us are dead spiritually, you know, or we're on life support. You know, we're on spiritual life support. So we look fine on the outside, we're going to church fairly regularly. We return tithe. We, we know a few Bible verses here and there. But inside, we're poor, we're wretched, we're miserable, we're blind, we're naked. You know, the, the lukewarm state is in full effect. And so this is why faith seems kind of so-so. Our relationship with God, kind of so-so. Our prayer life, kind of so-so. Because despite the outward trappings of health, inside, we're, we're basically about a flatline spiritually. And the question is why? Well, one way to answer that question is to look at the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is a body of water. It's actually a lake in the Middle East. It borders Israel. It's referenced several times in the Bible. Uh, but here's the one thing you need to understand. The Dead Sea is called dead because nothing can grow in it. Nothing can exist in its waters. And the reason why nothing can grow and the reason why you cannot drown in the Dead Sea, you know, if you jump in the Dead Sea, you'll float to the top. The reason is because the Jordan River and many other small streams of water dump into it, but nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. So the water gets trapped. 
it evaporates over time, and it's evaporating at a rate that's faster than the infrequent desert rainfall can replenish it. So the sea becomes so concentrated with salt and minerals that nothing can exist in those conditions from a biochemical standpoint. And that's the same thing with our life, you know, where our souls get so saturated and, and concentrated with doctrine and empty theology and, and things we have swirling on our head, we heard from church, but we're just keeping it to ourselves. Like everything is just staying inside. So our spiritual lives cannot be active. We're not going to feel that vibrancy if we're just taking in and not flowing out. We have to share with others. We have to be transparent with others. So if you find that reading the Bible is boring, you find that your prayer life is a joke, you find the fire has gone out of the relationship with God, or maybe you had never had that fire, then you need to start sharing what you have. Stop hiding your light under a bushel. Put that bad boy on a mountain so everyone can see. And what you'll see, and we'll talk about this later in self-check, is you know, you'll find that just sharing the little bit that you have you think you don't understand the scriptures, you can't break down the Bible, you don't know Hebrew, you don't know Greek. Just share what you have and God will give you more. I'm speaking from experience. So the reason, the general reason why we should be transparent about our faith is that it improves our own lives, allows us to share more as opposed to us just being a receptacle for doctrine and for religion and not actually having a relationship God being cultivated because, you know, we're just dead inside. Now, what about within the context of church? You know, the Great Commission, go ye therefore into all the world, doesn't just apply to non-believers. There's a lot of witnessing opportunities right in the church where you are. If you are, you know, you're really transparent, maybe you're thinking, like, if I tell people I, tr- I struggle with this or I had an issue with this, you know, then you think that that ruins your perfect image. It, it, it damages your testimony because, you know, they're, they're thinking, oh, wait, wow, you did that. And so you think people are going to look at you sideways. There's a pastor that I'm aware of that is infamous for giving testimonies about his long struggle with pornography. You know, I, I'm talking about how he would preach a great, great sermon. He'd have a revival, evangelistic series or whatever would have you and go home that evening and watch pornography. Now, of course, by the time he has given this testimony, thank God he had been delivered of that for some time. But, you know, he's telling this account and, and some folks are really encouraged by it. But others are like, you know, why would you put yourself on front street? Why would you, you know, some things we should just keep behind closed doors because we don't want to be a stumbling block to someone who's listening. But I'm telling you how powerful that transparency is and how it removes barriers, whether it's for a young person whether it's for a new Christian, because there's a stigma that to be in church, you have to be perfect. You have to be following do's and don'ts. And if you can't follow the rules, then you need to go get it together, get rid of all of your issues, and then come back when you're sinless. You know, and and that's silly because a church is a place for sick people. You know, if your fear is being a hypocrite, guess what? If you're not a hypocrite, you don't need to be going to church. A church is a place for hypocrites It is the fellowship of believers. It's not for the righteous. It's not for those who are sinless. It's for those who are spiritually unhealthy. So if you have problems, come on in. Welcome to the club. So being transparent allows you to have, uh, to reach people that others can't. So for example, if someone's an alcoholic, you know, like me, I I didn't, I didn't, I I drank before when I was in college but I didn't struggle with alcoholism. So if I'm trying to witness to someone who's an alcoholic, who's still struggling with that, and I'm just telling them, hey, you know, James 1.12 says, you know, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he's approved, he will receive the crown of life, give it to God, turn it over to him, he'll make everything all right. But those are empty words when he or she knows that, that I don't have any real experience. I can't give a realistic testimony of that having an effect delivering me from alcoholism, from the slavery of that sin. So they're like, whatever, you don't know what it's like, just keep it moving, just kick rocks. Now, obviously, as we've said in the previous show, you don't have to be an alcoholic or a drug dealer or coming out of prison to be a powerful Christian. You can be a clean-cut person who's never went into the world, and God has a ministry for you. Matter of fact, that was probably, that was his plan for you, but he's able to work through our deficiencies and still get the glory. So 
if he's delivered you and if James 1.12 really helps you and if praying certain types of prayers really allowed God to up your faith to where your faith caught up with the deliverance that he's already promised, the promise of victory over sin, then give that testimony. You know, tell them this is what you went through. You went through sleepless nights. You know, you went through having to change your patterns of driving where you couldn't drive certain places because uh, if you pass a liquor store, you knew you were going to stop. So, you know, you had to put yourself in good situations. You had to pray certain types of prayers. And by God's grace, your faith increased. Someone's going to listen to that testimony. And, and, and with that, if you have that kind of, of deliverance, that is power. You know, that is supernatural power. And God expects you. You know, you know they say with great power comes great responsibility. God has given you the ability to reach people. You know, for someone who's never experienced that, they can't reach them. So when you can do the things that God has called you to do, but you don't, and then bad things happen, like that person leaves the church or even worse, then in a real sense, it happened because of you. And I know that sounds kind of extreme, hyperbolic. It sounds unrealistic. And, you know, maybe I'm kind of playing into the, those exaggerated tones that some evangelists speak. You know, this might have been the one chance that they had to accept Christ, and maybe you were the one representation of him. And, and you failed in that opportunity, so now they're going to be lost forever. You know, we know that God works tirelessly to save every soul. You know, he's not going to, thank God, he doesn't leave salvation to soul to each, every one, to each one of us. So he'll send someone else to reach them. Um, but what about you? What about your blessing? What about the warning that's given to watchmen? You know, we see in Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33 where you had the opportunity to sway someone towards Christ, and you didn't do it. Their blood will be on your hand. So it behooves us to be transparent, to be forthright whenever we can. And, and prayer is always the key. You know, let, let's, not, let's not go away from prayer. You know, there are times where we should not be transparent. There are times where saying something, talking about our past, we might do it in a manner that glorifies it. And so that person who's on the fence you know, they hear about you in your good old days, and that makes that pushes them back into the world. So, you know, if we rely on self, we know how that movie ends. But if the Holy Spirit has called you, he's put some words in your mouth, put a fire in your heart to witness to someone inside the church, to not be judgmental, but to tell them this is what you went through, then definitely do so. And not only will that person receive a blessing, and the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to work on their heart, but it comes back to you because you're now keeping all this inside of you to be spiritually dead on the inside. It's going to flow out and you'll see your faith flourish. When it comes to being transparent about our faith, perhaps the most challenging aspect of that in our minds is doing so outside the church, doing, doing so outside of our comfort zone of the fellowship of believers, you know, people with whom we share a common faith and having to go into the world. And you might be hesitant to share the gospel for a lot of reasons. You know, real talk. There's a lot of negative stigmas about people of faith. You have folks who claim to be religious, but they'll strap a bomb to their chest. You know, they'll commit uh, acts of terror. You have churches that regularly engage in hate speech. Um, we know that over the years, the Bible has been used to condone things like slavery and racism and sexism and discrimination. And there are religious leaders today that will push political's agenda that go against what we see in the Bible and it's supposedly done within the framework of, of morality, but there's a lot of hypocrisy around that. So, so you're thinking, you know, if I say I'm a believer, then they'll associate me with those folks. They'll lump me in that basket. And that's a legit concern. Maybe you're paranoid about inviting people to your church because you think your church is a mess. Or, or, or maybe your church really is a mess because, like we said, a church is a place of sick people. So the same problems that exist outside the church exist inside the church. I know being transparent, for years, I didn't want to invite people to my church back in Arizona. And I'm ashamed of it after the fact. And the main reason was because of something that happened almost 10 years ago, um, where we had a community guest day. This is where we invite people who don't normally go to church you know, folks from the community, friends, family, they don't normally go to church. And this one day we had a special program for them. 
So my wife and I had invited a couple of friends of, of ours to come. And in the morning, we're having a Bible study. We're having a, a lively discussion. And, and one of the members, this gentleman, just starts berating certain practices and, and habits that are very common among people who have coming. It's like, if you do this, you're a pagan and you're going to hell. And God can't save you. And, <clears throat> you know, we're trying to do some damage control. We're trying to paint a true picture of the character of God, who his purpose is to save all of us from the sins that we engage in. You know, we can't call out someone else's sin because they sin differently from us. But, you know, bless his heart, this guy, he won't stop. He's going on. It's very uncomfortable. You know, you could cut through the tension with a chainsaw. And sad to say, as a result, the friends that we invited will never come back. So from that point on, I was like, nah, I'm not inviting people to my church. I can't trust something that happened to go down. I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't know what's going to happen, what's going to be said. I don't want to be turned off. So, so, so that's, that's also a legitimate fear that we might have. Maybe you're at work. Maybe that's the best place for you. That's where you interact the most. Because most of us, if we have a regular job, we spend more time there than anywhere else. So your fear is getting in trouble for proselytizing. You know, maybe you'll lose your job. Maybe you'll feel hesitant about telling people about your struggles that you're going through because, you know, you're feeling like if God does not deliver within a reasonable time frame, then that person's going to be, well, God don't seem to be loving them. God's not an on-time God like they claim him to be. Won't that give God a bad name? Here's something that might give you some encouragement. God goes above and beyond to show his power to unbelievers. So those of us who are of the faith, you know, we've all been given a measure of faith. We've tested him to a certain capacity. Um, hopefully we are learning to wait on God. So like we said, with great power comes great responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. So we've been given much from a faith standpoint and God thus expects more from us. But those, for those who have not tried him for himself, for themselves, God will go the second and the third mile to show who he is. So let's dive into our case study and see this play out in the Bible. First Kings chapter 19 and 20. Now to understand this, let's look at the backstory from the previous few chapters, starting at the end of chapter 16, where we see that the king of Israel at that time was King Ahab, who was one of the most wicked kings that we see in the Bible. And he's married to King, to Queen Jezebel, who was the priestess of Baal. You know, this is Bonnie and Clyde. You know, she's actually the brains of the operation but they're both sold out and devoted, devoted into turning God's people into all-out Baal worshipers. It's just idolatry in its purest form. And, you know, the prophet Elijah, he urges the people to get off the fence, you know, to stop being indecisive. Either you serve God with everything you got or you serve Baal with everything you have. And there's a showdown in Mount Karma between him and the prophets of Baal. And God answers with fire from heaven. And the people are like, yo, you know, Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah rallies the people. And, you know, they raise up against these false prophets. They slaughter them. And in chapter 19, we see Queen Jezebel. And that's her peoples. They got wiped out. So she is, you know, she's not too happy, to put it mildly. And she comes breathing threats against Elijah. She threatens his life. And Elijah has a moment of weakness. He gives into his fear and he flees the scene. God finds him and he's like, you know, what you doing here? And Elijah has this pity party, which we're all known to do at some point in time. And he's like, you know, I've been putting all this work. I've been faithful. I've been zealous. And for what? You know, all the other prophets have been killed by, by Jezebel and Ahab. And I'm the only one that's left. And now they're after me. So God just put me out of my misery. No one's got my back. It's not even worth continuing. You know, I mean, you can almost hear the violence playing in the background. And, and, and so God comes in and he's like, yo, let me correct your alternative facts. Ain't nothing special about you. You know, you know, you don't have a monopoly on tribulation, on persecution, on being faithful. Peep this. I have 7000 brothers and sisters on my squad who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So so don't get it twisted like you got something that, that they don't have. And eventually Elijah gets back on mission and going into chapter 20 we see Ben-Hadad of Syria rear his ugly head again. Now, we saw him a couple episodes ago when we read the account of King Asa in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 about how he could have wiped out all of the Syrians if he had done things God's way. But he went his way, got some little victory, but he let the, the Syrians get away. They escaped to fight another day. 
And now they're knocking on Samaria's door. They're about to siege the city. This is the capital of Israel. And um, Benadad, he's like, you know, well, I've heard, you know, let me see if I can punk King Ahab because I've heard he's kind of this sniveling coward. So let me see what I can get out of him. So he sends some messages to Ahab. He's like, yeah, um, I'm going to need you to give me your wives and your children and your silver and your gold. Okay, thanks. And true to form, Ahab is like, oh, yes, sir, Master Boss, whatever you say, I'll get that over to you right away. Yes, sir. And Benadad's like, whoa, that was too easy. You know, what else can I squeeze out of him? And so he goes back to him and he's like, yeah. Also, I'm going to need you to go ahead and let my ministers come through all of your houses. They'll take whatever they want. And I'm going to just need you to look the other way. Okay? It's time to render to Caesar. We're going to tax you a little bit. Thanks. So Ahab goes crawling to the elders of Israel. And he's like, man, you know, I gave him everything he asked for. You know, he asked for my money. He asked for my wives. He just won't stop picking on me. What should I do? And the elders are like, bruh. Grow a backbone. Like, 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 just tell them this is not acceptable. We ain't acquiescing to nothing. And Ahab goes slinking back to Benadad, like, sir, Master Boss, uh, you know, the first thing you asked for, that was that was cool. But the second thing, uh, I don't know. I don't know if we'll be able to do it, sir. And that's all Benadad was waiting for. Like, he was going to take him out anyway, but he was looking for an excuse. <laughs> so he's like, you want to go to war? We'll take you to war. And he marshals his troops. He's about to march against Samaria. But an interesting thing happens. A prophet shows up and, you know, this could be Elijah. We're not given the prophet's name. It's probably one of the other people that God has reserved, one of his faithful people. And the prophet goes to Ahab and is like, um, yo, you see this, this multitude of Syrians that are talking trash and they're trying to march against you. God's going to deliver them into your hand. And Ahab, you know, he knows he's not doing it right. So he's looking around like, he can't be talking to me. Like, wait, you talking to me, (laughs) wicked king uh, Ahab? And the prophet says, yeah, you. And so Ahab says, oh, bet. You know, so he he puts, he gets his troops together and they go out and they fight the Syrians and they have, they have a great victory. They win. And the Syrians retreat. The Benadad gets away. He's on a horse. So obviously he can outrun uh, the Israeli foot soldiers. And the prophet comes back to Ahab and says, you ain't seen nothing yet. So the Syrians regroup, and in verse 23, we see what, you know, their explanation as to why they were defeated by the inferior army of the Israelites. Verse 23 says, And the, serv- the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we'll be stronger than they. So this is their mentality as to why things went south. But, but in verse 28, we see God is not having any of this tugging on his cape, putting him on the same plane as these fake gods of wood and stone. So, so, so he, he sends the prophet back to King Ahab and, and he says, because the Syrians have said, this is verse 28, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And so they fight once again, Israel versus the Syrians, and the Israelites kill 100,000 Syrians in one day. And the Syrians retreat back to the city, and the wall falls on top of them, and 27,000 more of them get wiped out. Of course, Benadad gets away, like the villain always seems to get away. But this was this great miracle that's performed on behalf of a king, a wicked king, Ahab, who ended up not even repenting. But this was an act of God to try to convince both the Syrians who were idol worshipers and Ahab and those bystanders watching from a distance. And and I like to believe that somebody was converted because of this, because there was now no doubt that Jehovah was God. I would also submit that God did this because of the few righteous, faithful individuals who were among the people, the prophets and those who stood up to the oppression of Ahab and Jezebel. So what's the application for you? You're at your job, you're in class at school, you and your family, wherever your locale, wherever your sphere of influence is. And like Elijah, you might think that you're the only one. You know, no one else is faithful. What's the point of you even trying to be transparent? What kind of influence, what kind of impact can just you have all by yourself? But God is willing to go above and beyond to prove to those people in your life who don't have the faith that you do 
that faith in him is worth it. He's willing to prove to that person who doesn't know about waiting on God, doesn't know about the peace that passes understanding. He will give them a free sample. You know, like you go to the food court at the mall and there are folks who are handing out free samples because, you know, you've never had that food before, presumably. So you taste it and that entices you to buy the full meal. God will offer free samples to those who have never tried them, who have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And, and so you think you don't have any influence, but because of your faithfulness, because of your unwillingness to compromise, even if everyone is telling you that what is wrong is OK, even if the whole world is telling you to move and you're willing to plant yourself like a tree and look in the eye and be like, nah, you move. God will bless and work a miracle through 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 you on the strength of that. So so let's move to self-check. We're talking about transparency and the fear of being transparent, whether in our church or outside the church. The first thing is, let's analyze your reasons for being fearful. Why are you afraid of being transparent? If you are paranoid about being guilty by association, by being lumped in with those people who claim to be Christians, but they're misusing the label, they're misrepresenting the Bible, let God use you to change the narrative. So if you're different, then maybe you have an opportunity to, to be a witness of what a true Christian is supposed to be. If you are afraid or you have this feeling like, you know, you have to be right before you can share your faith, just like that people like, just like that feeling like we have to be right before we go into church. Check this. If we had to be spotless before we stepped into the church, church would be empty. You know, you know, there is, you know, righteousness by works is not a thing. That is fake news. You see what I'm saying? So it is by faith that we are saved and it is by sharing the little that you have that you get more and that you bolster your faith to get stronger. If you are waiting for God to deliver you out of a trial before you tell someone about it, you're missing a blessing. In some cases, when you tell a non-believer about something you're going through, it might actually increase the chance of God coming through for you in a mighty way. Because he is going to prove that unbeliever. This is how I get down. This is how I treat my people. You see what I'm saying? If you are afraid of someone coming to your church on your account and you don't want them to see dysfunction, you're like, I don't want to see hypocrisy or, or, or backbiting. When it comes to winning souls for the kingdom, just remember it is not our job to close the sale. It's not our job to finalize the deal. You know, uh, we're only supposed to make the connection to Christ and let the Holy Spirit do the work. Let God upsell them. You know, let God do the work that only he can do. Only he can change hearts. We can't do that. We're not the, the product owner. We're not the distributor. We're not the wholesaler. We are an affiliate of salvation. So you just point people to Christ, let them do the rest. So that's the first thing. Analyze your reasons for being fearful, and let's get rid of those one by one by God's grace. The second thing is if you see someone in your church who's struggling with something, maybe it's a substance abuse, addiction, gambling, some other bad habit, maybe it's a financial difficulty, Examine your own life and see if there's some things that maybe you've done, some experiences you've gone through that you're not proud of, but they can resonate with that individual. Be transparent because if you're transparent, you can be a blessing to someone that makes your ministry to them far more effective than someone who does not have that background. Maybe you were called for such a time as this. So pray for direction first. Pray for opportunities to reach out for them. See if you can engage them in conversation. In private. In private is usually best. You know, sometimes they're, they're people who are very reserved. And you know they're going through things, but you try to talk to them and they just clam up. Here's the thing. If you get transparent and make yourself vulnerable first, eventually they will open up. So let's say that you suspect that they're struggling with their marriage, but they don't want to speak on it. Go ahead and proffer the fact that you too have struggles in your relationships. Talk about mistakes that you make and, and how, how you let the devil get between you and your spouse and how you were able to overcome or you are overcoming in those moments by God's grace. Like I said, it's not going to happen overnight, but eventually you will make a connection. And the third thing that I have is that if you're trying to be transparent outside of work or outside in, in the workplace, you have to be careful, obviously, in this settings, even in a private corporation or a government locale, there's sometimes rules in place. So you don't want to be hitting someone over the top of the head with a Bible. You know, you don't want to be on the side, you know, of the building with a loudspeaker. Here's something that I would suggest. 
when you talk to your coworkers or if you're at school, you're talking to your classmates, just interject some faith-based jargon into your, into your interaction. You know, you know, actually, back when I had a job job, before I started working for myself, one of my coworkers, you know, this lady, every time she asked me how I was doing, I would say I was blessed and highly favored. And, and this is something we say in church all the time, but outside the church, most folks haven't heard that. So she's just so, so geeked by that. And so one day I remember, you know, I don't know what it was, was going on, why I didn't respond in that manner. But she asked how I was doing, and I said, I'm good, how are you? And she says, I'm good, but I was hoping that you would say I'm blessed and highly favored. And so she asked me, where's it even come from? I said, you know, that, that's from the Bible. You know, that's from Luke chapter 1. And, and it sparked a conversation about faith. We're praying for opportunities to, to, to witness in a way that's respectful of the environment that you're in, where they're asking you questions, you know, but you need to start injecting those statements into your conversation. For example, I pray that. Uh, I have faith that. By God's grace, um, I was blessed by... You know, those are those trigger words for someone who, you know, hopefully eventually they'll, they'll take the bait. You know, they may not catch on right away, but over time they'll say, hey, you know, what, what faith are you in? You know, you, you keep mentioning these things. Uh, so obviously that is, uh, that will pique their curiosity. So instead of, you know, uh, like, oh, let me, let me tell you about Jeremiah 29, 11 and, and trying to have an all-out Bible study by the water cooler. You know, maybe you might say something like, you know, maybe someone asks about your behavior. You know, they see you acting differently. And, you know, I know one of the pastors in my old church used to quote this quote, you know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. So your actions should show yourself as being different. And eventually people want to know the words and the reason behind what you're doing, what you're doing. So they see you with a different response and the world responds. They ask you and you can say, hey, you know, I was reading in my devotion this morning this passage that they're talking about that talks about the thoughts that God has towards us, thoughts to, uh, of peace and thoughts not of evil. And so your experiential transparency is something that no one can argue with. In other words, if you're telling someone your story of what's happened in your life in the past, no one can say anything about that. Versus if you talk about the Bible and your interpretation of the Bible, it's all theory. And there's a million different interpretations that you can have, but your experience is your experience. So use that to your advantage. Don't be afraid of being transparent because when you are transparent, you're not just a cesspool of stagnant water. Your faith is flowing out of you and into the lives of others, reviving your own life in the process. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the experiences you've given us that we can share with others that you've called us to be affiliates to point others to christ i thank you for doing all the hard work you know i, I can't imagine trying to change stony hearts uh, of flesh into into hearts of flesh but you do that on the regular you do the impossible on the regular and we praise your name for that so i'm asking that you give us courage to be transparent to open up doors of opportunity for us to minister to people in uncomfortable spaces at our workplaces in our homes, in our classrooms, even at church, so that those who come into contact with us, that we have the love of Christ working within us, and they want to know more, and we can point people to you whom to know is life eternal. Use us to build your kingdom. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. This is Vox Wave, Faith Practically. Another episode will follow after the break. boys and girls welcome to episode five of faith practically i am darian claxton and in this session we'll look at the contrast between seeking a blessing and being a blessing we'll discuss a very tragic story that warns us about misusing the gifts of the holy spirit 
and we'll explore some unique keys to improving our prayer life. But first, let's pray. Father God, be with my mouth and teach me what to say. In Christ's name, amen. This episode is entitled, Don't Seek a Blessing, Be a Blessing. One of the central themes of this show is the idea of imbalance, the challenge of trying to find a balance between our spiritual life of faith and our practical lives in the world. And in keeping with that theme, today we're going to be talking about finding an equilibrium between the notion of me seeking a blessing for myself versus being a blessing to somebody else, particularly in the church context. When we know that the habit, the habit of looking out for number one, of being self-centered, self-serving, it's exhibited in virtually every facet of our lives. So we don't have to look too far to see that. So for example, me, I, I'm a business owner. I go to a lot of business networking events for entrepreneurs. And a lot of folks that are there at these events, you know, they're looking out for number one. They're, they're looking for a blessing for themselves. So they come with a stack of business cards. They want to hand them out so you have their information. They're trying to grab your card just so they can spam you with some products they're trying to shove down your throat. And when they come to you saying, hey, you know, what do you do? Now, in most cases, they're not, they, don't, they don't really care what you do unless, unless you say something that's kind of an open door for them to sell you something. They're really just waiting for you to shut up so they can tell you about how great they are. And in the networking world, there are, there are many folks, most of the folks who are very successful at networking, they apply the giver's gain mentality. Now, these are believers and non-believers. Now, what that, that, that is, that mentality is, is realizing that by having a given mentality and looking to help someone else's business, it comes back to you. But unfortunately, many people, they go into it thinking, nah, that, that don't sound right. You know, I'm not going to go that route. How, how can I help my own business thrive if I'm just working on someone else's? I'm sending referrals their way. That doesn't make any sense. I need to be about me and mine. And if you were to look at your job and your classroom setting, your school setting, you will see this, this mentality being played out. Now, we'd expect the church to be different, right? And we'd expect those who've been converted to be thinking about others. But as we saw last time, the same problems that exist in the world exist in the church. So think about your life. You get a long, exhausting week, punching the clock for the man, and, you know, taking care of your kids, commuting here and there, uh, dealing with school, staying up late nights to study. There are many challenges that we have, obviously. So you get to the weekend. It's time to go to church. And you're just like, nah, I, I, you, you want to sleep in. You want to go to Bedside Baptist or, or Mattress Mission. You know, just kind of relax. Uh, maybe later on you, you watch a sermon online or turn on some Christian music. But, you know, you're just too tired to do anything but just, just mail it in for that week. But hopefully the Holy Spirit comes upon you and impresses you that you need to be among the fellowship of believers. You need to have that, that connection, that contact reminding you from others about those who have been through tough weeks. I and mean, hopefully he inspires you to wipe the crust out your eyes and splash some cold water on your face, you know, peel yourself out of bed, throw some clothes on, hit the church. But when you get there, you're like, I don't have anything left to give to, to somebody else. You know, my week was so challenging that I need to be filled. I need my blessing. And so if you don't like the choir songs or the soloist was off key, the children's story was too long, the sermon wasn't top notch, you complain, you get upset, and you ultimately leave unfulfilled. And maybe that sets the tone for your week. Now, if church session was good, you're like, oh, child, pass the priest today. And, and you've leave filled, and hopefully that also sets the tone for your week. But, you know, it's a side note. Something that I often say is that we cannot be expecting the pastor or the elders or the deacons or deaconesses or members of the church to fill us spiritually. We have to be eating every day. So no one's going to go to a nice restaurant for dinner and have a delicious five-course meal and wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I'm good from yesterday, you know, and every day that week. No, I, I ate on Monday, so I'm good to go. No, you're going to get up the next morning and you're going to eat two, three times a day, hopefully. If you get invited to someone's house to eat, 
you know, you bring your appetite, but if they don't have any food for whatever reason, or the food is not uh, adequate, are you going to starve? No. You're going to go out and get food because your physical body needs nourishment to stay alive. And likewise, your spiritual body needs spiritual nourishment to stay alive. So, so every day we need to be eating on our own, reading the Bible, praying on our own, and getting fulfilled and looking to be spiritually fed on a day-to-day basis. But getting back to this, this, this concept, this, this fostered attitude that we have about looking for the next blessing, always looking to be blessed ourselves. We might have the temptation to church hop, you know, to go from church to church from week to week. So like if you live in a city like Washington, D.C., so here there's a lot of options. There's a lot of good churches, a lot of good preachers, good music in a relatively small area. So you have a decision to make every weekend on where you're going to go. So maybe you're like, you know, who's preaching this week? I'm going to go there. You know, who's got the best program? I, I, we'll, we'll go there. Um, which nationally recognized choir is in town and performing? Let's roll, let's roll through there. And if you don't get a blessing, you leave. Now, if you find a church that's bringing it week after week, then you'll keep going. But as soon as they start to fall off, you're not getting that blessing, you're looking for the next church. Exit stage left. There is not a commitment to one church. In many cases, our lives, we're just kind of looking, uh, going from church to church. Our membership might be with one locale, but we're looking for a place that we can be filled up. But the problem with this me first mentality is, or one problem, is the only reason you had any desire to go to church or to pray or to read your Bible or to be spiritually fed is because the Holy Spirit gave you that desire. You know, we read in many texts of the Bible, the flesh cannot please God. Uh, the flesh is not subject to the law of God. Our hearts are wicked and deceitful. So it is only when the Spirit uh, inspires us that we can do anything for God and be obedient. And it's also the Holy Spirit that gives us spiritual gifts, which you read about in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. So these spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit, they're not for our own building up, but for the edification of the body of Christ. And in many cases, we look at some of those gifts as being glamorous. You know, we like the sexy ones, you know, the gift of prophecy or the preaching or speaking in tongues, interpretation and healing and teaching and leading and evangelism. And all of those are available to those who submit to the Holy Spirit. He gives different gifts to different people, but if we use those gifts for his glory, he will multiply them and give us more. But you know what's not a spiritual gift? Raising your hand in the air because the choir's singing a really good song. Not a gift. Saying amen during a good message. Not a spiritual gift. Uh, nothing wrong with those. But if your only purpose for going to church is to engage in those activities and express why, how you're receiving a blessing. You're missing out on a greater blessing. And in case it's unclear, let's set the record straight about any validating this notion that seeking your own blessing is the will of God. And I've actually heard this before. People make this argument that we are commanded to love ourselves. We've got to love ourselves before we can love anyone else. But in reality, there's no command in the Bible to love yourself. And I'll admit, up until last year, I thought that, you know, the Bible says, you know, love for God and love for your neighbor. And it's all throughout. It's in the first five books of the Bible. It's in the Torah. Christ spoke about it. Uh, it's all throughout the epistles. We see this over and over again. And I thought one of those iterations had the phrase, love your neighbor as you love yourself, which would imply that for fulfilling the love of Christ includes loving yourself. But nowhere do we see that phrase. It says, love your neighbor as yourself, which may seem very similar, but the difference is with that phrase, God is saying it's expected that you're going to love yourself. That's a given. Even if you feel depressed or down, at the end of the day, you love yourself. I love me some me. That's the mentality we have. We're supposed to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. <coughs> then you have folks that would cherry pick the Bible and they're like, you know, what about that text that says, work out your own salvation with weird fear and trembling? So that's the thinking. I'm just working out my own salvation. You know, I don't have it this week for, for anyone else. I can't be bothered. I just came to get my praise on, to get my blessing on. And maybe next week I'll think about somebody else. 
But if we would look at that text, even forgetting the others in the Bible about loving others and, and edifying others and building up others, in that text alone, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul, who's the author of Philippians, he's speaking to the church of Philippi. And he's saying, you know, while I was there with you guys, you were being obedient. But don't be obedient just because I'm there. Because now that I'm not there, you still need to be obedient. Not for my sake, but for your sake and for your own, your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Regardless of what I say, regardless of what the preacher says, it has to be based on you and God. And the very next verse makes it clear that it is God because it says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So again, any desire to do good, to be obedient comes from God. So when it comes to getting a blessing versus being a blessing, we're talking about divine mathematics. You know, we're looking at addition by subtraction or in most cases, multiplication by subtraction. You tithe the money that already God, that belongs to God and it comes back to you. Blessings come back to you fourfold, tenfold, a hundredfold. Tithing your time. Uh, you receive a blessing by giving a blessing and a far bigger blessing than if you simply try to get one on your own. Let's see this play out in our case study. In Acts, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, we read about the establishment of the early church. And so Christ has returned to heaven. He promised to send the Holy Spirit and they get into one accord in the upper room and the apostles and the believers, uh, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and the church begins to grow at an exponential uh, rate. We're talking about explosive growth. And you have people speaking in tongues. You have some great preaching. You have thousands being baptized. You have people being healed. Folks are praying together, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the end of chapter four, it says that when they got together and prayed, the whole place shook. And then we read that after that point, all of the believers, you know, about thousands at this point, they shared everything they had. You know, no one thought of themselves as owning anything. Everybody ate. No one lacked anything. But in chapter 5, we see something very strange. Acts chapter 5, as far as I can tell, is the only place where we see God in the New Testament being swift and lethal with his judgment. So in this chapter, we have this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who are among the believers. And they decide to sell one of their properties and give it to the apostles, which is something that, that many people were doing. And presumably, those who gave money to the fellowship, to the brotherhood, received praises, they received accolades, they were lauded, they got some prestige in the eyes of those who witnessed their giving. And, and so Annas and Sapphira, maybe, you know, they were thinking about getting some of that praise. Maybe their thought process was, you know, you know, let's buy in and, and let's show them we have some skin in the game so that we can reap some of the rewards of being taken care of. We can retire. We don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from, where our clothes are coming from. They'll take care of us. But if we don't give all of the proceeds and we hold some of it for ourselves, we'll have a little nest egg to buy some of the nice things we've grown accustomed to. So they make this agreement privately with themselves that they're going to hold back some of the money, but it's implied in the text and publicly to the apostles, they told them, we're going to sell this property and we're going to give every dime of the proceeds to you. So they didn't have to make that promise. Uh, they didn't have to proffer that information, but they decided to do so. And they put their, their plan into effect. Ananias goes and he has a percentage of the proceeds. It might have been 50%, it might have been 99%, whatever it was, it was not the whole amount, but he presented it to Peter as if it was every penny. And Peter calls him out like, yo, man, why would you let Satan entice you to lie and to hold out? And it's not like they were holding out on the apostles and the apostles had this dire financial need and they were relying upon on the couples to come through and rescue them with their money. No, Peter said, you have not lied to men, but to God, to the Holy Spirit. And Ananias falls dead. A couple of brothers come and carry him out and bury him. And a few hours later, Sapphira, who was not with him, but she's probably wondering what happened to him. He hasn't shown up yet. She goes up to see Peter and Peter gives her a chance to fess up. And she doubles down like, yeah, that was a full amount. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, sometimes we we cast somebody in a lie. Like we know we ask somebody a question. Maybe it's a child of ours or or someone they were in a relationship with 
or, or a friend or associate or coworker, and we know the answer, but we want to see if they'll tell the truth. And when they lie, we have the choice to, to rake them over the coals or to, to give them some more, ro more rope to hang themselves with, see how deep they dig themselves. Peter just ends it right there. Like, he doesn't play any games. He's like, yo, you have tested the Lord, and the same people who came to take your husband out dead are going to bury you right next to him. And she drops dead in that moment. The Bible says a great fear came upon the church as a result. So we may ask ourselves, why didn't they get a slap on the wrist? Why was this judgment so harsh? Matter of fact, if you look back a few chapters in Acts chapter 3, we see people who were party to, the to, to crucifying Christ were part of the congregation. And they had an opportunity when Peter preached to, be, to repent and to be baptized. So we're like, why wasn't that same opportunity given to them? Now, we could spend hours parsing the blasphemy that they committed against the Holy Spirit and committing the unpartable sin and because the Spirit brings life and when they rejected the Spirit, they got death. But that's not the focus of this session. Obviously, it was impactful on the early church and it was necessary at that time. The Holy Spirit was very active. The, the church was growing leaps and bounds as we saw. And we saw people being teleported from one place to another. We see handkerchiefs of apostles healing people, sick people when they touch them. Uh, shadows of disciples who had deceived, uh, shadows of people, shadows of disciples would heal people. You know, people were being raised from the dead, people being freed from prison. All these things we don't see happening on that scale were happening on the regular. You know, miracles were as common as special music and tithing offering. Every week, something was going down at church. But as we saw last time, great power, with great power comes great responsibility. There had to be a message sent about the dangers of misusing the gift of the Holy Spirit, of being selfish with that gift. And it had to be such that it would resonate not just for them, you know, thousands of years ago, but for us today. And we have to see what the real sin of this couple was. And it wasn't the fact that they held back the money. This is not a tithing thing. We need to give money to the church. This is not about that. This was the fact that the idea to give this money from their property came from God. You know, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And it's very, you know, it's very likely that they were part of the gathering that we see at the end of Acts 4. They were among those that were praying together, and the ground shook, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. So they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to sell their property and to give it to the apostles. Now, whether or not their ultimate motivation was selfish, the initial idea came from above. So Ananias and Sapphira went into that fellowship with one thing on their mind and one thing only. How could I get a blessing? So they were willing to hijack the power of the Holy Spirit and use it for their own selfish desires. So we can be taken care of and we don't have to worry about our old age and we can have some nice things. Let's kind of dissemble and feign interest in godly things, pretend we have the Holy Spirit so we can get our blessing on. So look, let's, let's look at ourselves. Holy Spirit impresses you to go to church, to join a church, to witness to someone, to pray for someone. That's a serious calling. And when you made that decision, you took on the responsibility of developing and investing the gifts that God gave you. You know, we read about the parable of the talents. Cultivating those talents and receiving more for the glorification of God as opposed to us using those just for our selfish reasons. What happens when church nominations come around and someone asks you, are you willing to teach a class or lead out a Bible study or be an usher or a deaconess or join a ministry department? What's your response? Like, nah, I'm good. Now nah, I got too much going on. Now nah, I need to leave out at the church. You know, I want to get my nap. Uh, I want to kind of cruise on for the rest of the day. When you do that, you're holding out on God. You're misusing the gifts that God gave you for the edification of the church. Now, I'm not saying you're supposed to say yes to every single person who's calling you to do something. But your church has dozens of departments, of the positions and ministries and team slots. You mean to tell me you can't do one of them? What about when someone asks you to come back in the afternoon for a youth event or for a revival meeting or to go feed the homeless or go to the nursing home and sing? And you always have some excuse because you think that there's no blessing therein. Actually, I'm going to include myself so I don't come off preaching. We think that there's no blessing within, so, so we're looking for the things that build us up. But if it's about somebody else, at the expense of our comfort, at the expense of our time, our sleep, we're not with that. 
And we want not think it's selfish because we actually think that we're doing God a favor by going to church. You know, we think that every time we crack open our Bible, we should get a pat on the back. We should get a cooker. We should get a gold star. But we see the danger from this passage in Acts 5 of putting ourselves first and making, getting our own blessing a priority or the priority. So let's shift over to self-check. I want you to make a list of the top five or ten things that are important to you at a church. What makes a good church? Because in reality, we're all looking for the perfect church, right? We want the grounds to be attractive. We want to see kind of what kind of food they had. They serve breakfast. How's the potlucks? Is there a good program for the children? How's the praise team or the musicians? Are they on point? We're ultimately looking for things that bless us. And, you know, there's no, there's nothing wrong with those qualities being on our list, but somewhere on that list and somewhere in the back of our minds, we have to be thinking, firstly, has God called me to this church? And secondly, if he has called me, why? What can I give to the church? How can I be a, a benefit to the church? Because we see in the book of Acts, you know, it's a very successful church, but they had a myriad of problems. We can't consider them the perfect church because they had, you know, big disagreements, they had sharp contention between, between men and women of God. There's nowhere you're going to go and find a perfect church. So we should be looking for a church that God's directed us to that will benefit from us being there. The second thing we ask ourselves is, what can you offer the church that you decide to go to besides your attendance? Because God, not, God is not impressed by your attendance. That's tantamount to you burying your talent and giving it back to God at the end and being like, boom, give me my ticket to heaven. Let me in. If you see problems in the church that you're going to, maybe God has called you there specifically to help resolve those problems instead of you turning around and trying to find a church that doesn't have those issues. What spiritual gifts has God given you for the edification of your church? Now, we know, obviously, the attractive ones, and you may say, you know, I can't do any of those. I can't prophesy. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. I, I, don't, I don't lead. I don't know how to evangelize. But if you go back to, you know, Romans chapter 12, um, we see that giving is a spiritual gift. You know, this bolsters the point about Annas and Sapphira because the desire to give to the church was actually a spiritual gift that was given to them. So giving is a gift. So you know how to give, you could be doing it for God. Exhibiting faith is a spiritual gift. Bible says helping is a spiritual gift. So you know how to help in any capacity. You could implement that immediately in your church and start being a blessing to someone else. Exhortation, where you're listening to people, maybe, maybe the folks at your church where you, you, you kind of avoid because they're going to talk your ear off about some trage tragedy that they have. And they always have some sad story. It's so horrific. It should be in a movie. You know, you, you see them for a distance. It's like, hey, God bless you. And you just kind of keep it moving. Maybe God has called you to exhort that person, to lift up that person, to pray with that person, to bear their burdens. That's a spiritual gift. Uh, showing mercy as a spiritual gift. You know, you have individuals with very difficult attitudes. They're, they're very belligerent. They're very abrasive. And, and they always want to step on your toes, whether figuratively or literally. And you're just fighting with all of your might to not throw foreign and domestic objects at them. You know, um, if I weren't a Christian, you say I wouldn't lay them out, but I'm just going to bite my tongue and walk away. No, that's not showing mercy. Showing mercy is showing the love of Christ, of loving the unlovable. Maybe God has called you to do that. Maybe that's why those individuals are in your church, and that's why you are there. Let's see what spiritual gifts we have and how we can apply those in our church to bless someone else. And the last thing I have involves one of things that I've struggled with, and that has to do with intercession, one-on-one. -on -one. So maybe at prayer meeting, or maybe outside the church setting, you know, you're praying with someone one-on-one -on -one and you get together and you tell them, you know, your prayer request and they tell you theirs and you're supposed to pray for each other. And it happened to me on several occasions where I'm praying with someone, I tell them what I'm praying for and when they pray, they don't pray for me at all. They don't mention any of my requests. And it's not about me. And, you know, you know, you know most people that do this don't realize that they're doing this. Um, but what I realized is that, you know, I saw myself in that because before I was spiritually being fed or I was convicted to be fed spiritually every day and praying every day, I was essentially using the time that the pastor or whoever else said to go ahead and pray, find someone to pray with. I was using that time to get my prayer in. 
the prayers I should have gotten in last night, I'm, I'm hijacking the time for someone else and their intercession to put up my supplications. So my challenge to you is when you're praying with someone, pray for them and them alone. Um, you know, we see in the book of Job, one of my favorite books of the Bible, that he spent 30 plus chapters after the calamities that fell upon him, you know, crying out to God, praying for himself about his issues, finding out how he can get relief from the things that he was going through, asking God why he was being unjust. But in Job 42.10, we see that when Job prayed for his friends, that's when healing came. That's when restoration came. That's when all the things that he lost came. James 5.16, another one says that when we pray for one another, that's when healing comes for ourselves. So sit down with someone. Don't even mention yourself. You pray solely for that individual. You lift them up. And, 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 and here's a bonus one. You sit down and pray with someone. You lift them up wholeheartedly. And you save your personal issues for when you're at home in your closet. But I would, I would challenge you to go next level. Tie some of your personal prayer time, particularly when you have, you know, you reach an impasse in your prayer session. Some challenge, you know, some catastrophe, some tragedy. You're crying out to God and you're not getting that peace. Start praying for someone else in that moment. Again, this goes back to divine mathematics. Don't you think that God knows your needs before you ask? Is the only reason why your prayers were answered in the past and the reason why you received blessing is because God answered? No. So if you only pray for others, you get an immeasurable blessing. Just like if you return all of your tithe, it would come back to you fourfold, 100-fold. As I've, you know, most of us don't have that kind of faith to do it, but when I've done it in a few instances and I've given everything, um, I've, I've received a blessing. So let's do what we can to seek a blessing and not be a blessing or to be a blessing and not seek a blessing. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father God, I thank you for taking our spiritual lives to the next level. I thank you for the peace that you've given us in, in moments of struggle. Um, I thank you for the example that you sent us for your son coming to this earth, being an example of seeking to be a blessing and not just receiving a blessing to putting others first and not ourselves first. Uh, we saw how he did it and we're asking that you give us the power to follow his example, that you give us a courage to put you to the test. Despite the needs that we have, despite the problems we have, the challenges that we have, and the temptations to try to fix ourselves first and to look for relief for ourselves first, I'm asking that you reward a little bit of faith that you've given us to prioritize others above ourselves. Thank you for being a faithful God, for being patient with us as we move towards that mark of salvation. And I'm asking for every person who's listening to this podcast that you would shower blessings. Every person who's watching, that they will be positioned for the blessings that you have for us, that you proportion for us. Thank you for forgiveness of sins, for saving us when you come. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next time on VoxWave.com.